Leviticus, despite all of its legalities and its complexities, is actually answering a very important and simple question. Uh, that, that question is, how can sinful man draw near to a holy God? You know, today we live in a culture where people have a real strong sense of entitlement. Now, this could be a good or a bad thing, but you know, there's one thing that we are certainly not entitled to, and that is free access to God. Because we are sinners, because there is evil in our hearts and malice in our minds, we do not have any right to be in God's presence unless, unless there's a system of grace and atonement. Unless there's a system where our sins can be forgiven and we can be give or granted access to God. See, and that's what Leviticus is about. And that's what the gospel is about. Now, of course, we are all aware that we don't draw near to God according to Leviticus. Right? Rather, we draw near to God in and through the work and person of Jesus Christ. However, the point is, these two are not disassociated. In fact, Leviticus is a part of God's unfolding plan of redemption that culminates at the cross. And so the point is this, if we understand the gospel, we can read backwards to gain a greater appreciation for the entire story and see how God is working in all of this. You know, it's like this. You ever watch a movie that is sometimes confusing, right? It's, it's somewhat confusing, perplexing, and all throughout, you just don't really know where this is going until you get to the end, and when you get to the end, you hit the climax, there's a revelation, and all of a sudden, the entire movie just makes sense in an instant. Um, you know, one of my favorite movies is uh, The Prestige. Uh, it's a movie that came out, I think, in 2006. Uh, it's a great movie. Uh, young Christian Bale, uh, young Scarlett Johansson, um, before he got super famous Christian Nol- uh, Christopher Nolan, right? It was a great, great film. And, you know, this, this movie is about two magicians all throughout just trying to jockey for position. And you're not really sure what this is, what's going on. How, how are they doing these things? You know, what's, what's going on? Until you get to the very end, right? You get to the end, and there's this revelation, and in an instant, everything just makes sense. Now, if you ever watch a movie like that, you get to the end, the entire story makes sense. If you go back and rewatch the film, you start to see that almost behind every line, um, behind every scene, there's intention. There's a, a foreshadowing of what's to come. And then you walk away with this greater appreciation of Wow, it all ties in together. What an amazing story. You see, this is essentially what we are trying to do. As we see the traces of the gospel in Leviticus, as we go back and we see how the gospel, it, 
there's a smaller expression of the gospel, even within this book, this legal cultic book, we come back and we say, wow, there was intention. And, you know, we end up, the, the result is nothing more than just greater worship, greater awe at what God is, what God is doing. You know, so if I can just speak to the present situation, you know, I want us to, you know, perhaps through Leviticus see that what we are doing here right, is not an accident. The worship that we have is not an accident. Church is not an afterthought. You are not an accident. I am not an accident. We see that all of this is a part of God's amazing and unfolding story of redemption. And this is the reason why we are looking at this book. So, Leviticus. So we talked about last week, there are um, five different types of offerings. Um, We begin with the sin offering. That's what the worshiper would, would begin with. The sin offering and the guilt offering. And then he would move on to the burnt offering. And that's what we're going to look at today. And finally, the worshiper uh, gives the grain and the peace offering. But the focus of our attention today is the burnt offering. Now, before we get into that, let me just say with this word offering, I think the word offering is uh, often misunderstood. Uh, Offering is not a bribe. Um, It's not even a gift. Uh, But this word offering is actually from the Hebrew word korban, which means to draw near. And so God is saying this, if you want to draw near, this is the way in which you do it. And so the people, by offering up something, they are drawing near. So the concept is not a gift, but it's a way in which a sinner can draw near to a holy God. So, burnt offering. To do this, the worshiper would bring an animal, a spotless animal, a perfect animal. Uh, He or she would bring this animal, and the priest would inspect it, make sure it's good. Then the worshiper would lay his hand on the head of the animal. And we saw this last week with the sin offering. But the worshiper would lay his hand on the animal, and the reason why he or she would do this is because this symbolized that the worshiper was identifying with the animal. Essentially, by laying his hand on the animal's head, he's saying, I am this animal. This represents me. Now, what happens after? After he lays his hand on the animal's head, and he puts heavy pressure on it, and he gets the sense that, you know what, this is me, what he would do is he would slaughter it. Now, unlike the sin offering... The burnt offering, the slaughtering takes place from the worshiper himself. It's actually the person who is bringing the offering that has to slay the animal. Now, the reason why it was the worshiper who had to slaughter was because the burnt offering was really about devotion. At the heart of the burnt offering was this idea that the worshiper, by offering this, was willing to die to himself, 
was willing to die to herself and submit wholly to God. This is one of the reasons why the burnt offering is the only one where the entire animal is burnt. Nothing is left over. And so I want you to visually picture this, what's going on in Leviticus 1. With one hand, you are leaning on the animal with all of your strength. You are applying extreme pressure to this animal. And when you finally get a sense, you know what? This animal is me. I am this animal. Then with the other hand, you would slaughter the animal. And then you would see the entire carcass put on the altar and going all up in flames. You see that this this animal is being purified by the fire. And as you stand there, seeing all of this, the only thing that should be running through your mind is this. That is me. It doesn't end there because the worshiper has to stand in front of that fire, perhaps for well over an hour. He watches as the entire animal is not destroyed but transformed. The animal is transformed from flesh to smoke. And as the smoke ascends to heaven, to the very place where God dwells, you, the worshiper, you are thinking, that is me. As you see this visual transformation of something earthly turning to something heavenly, you can't help but to have this feeling come over you, this feeling of self-denial, self-sacrifice, this feeling that you are drawing near to God, that you are entering into God's presence and you are being offered up. The burnt offering represented absolute surrender. The worshiper was being utterly consecrated to the Lord. He was dying to himself. She was dying to herself. There was a surrendering to God with this offering. I know this sounds quite dramatic and it sounds uh, real heroic, right? The worshiper comes with a very costly animal. In fact, of all the offerings that we have in Leviticus, um, the burnt offering actually has the most value. It costs the most. So there's this big cost involved. And the worshiper, um, you know, he's coming with this uh, costly animal, and it seems like the worshiper is fully committed, right? She is devoted, and they're willing to lay down their life, and it sounds great. But the sobering reality is the person can't do this on his own. You see, no matter how committed and ready the worshiper may be, by himself, He was in no way, shape, or form acceptable to God. See, this is why the spotless animal is needed. The burnt offering in Leviticus 1 tells us that no matter how devoted the person may be, the worshiper has to do it through a substitution. Look at what verse 4 says. It says this, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, And it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. See, verse 4 tells us that this animal is actually making atonement for the worshiper. 
Now, this word atonement uh, is the word kafar, and this word kafar means to propitiate. Now, propitiate is a word that we don't use often, but it simply means to, to conciliate or to, uh, to reconcile. And so Leviticus 1.4 is saying, this animal is reconciling the worshiper to God. This animal, this spotless animal, is conciliating. He is regaining the favor of God through this animal. You know, the English word atonement could actually be broken up into three words. Um, it's at one mint, right? At one mint. And this concept, this idea of atonement, is that two parties are becoming one. And that is essentially what the burnt offering, the sacrifice, is doing. This animal is bringing a holy God and a sinful man together to be one. Now, somehow we don't understand how this spotless animal was able to win God's favor for the person, but it did. And through that animal, the worshiper was offering up himself was offering up herself to ultimately be a pleasing aroma that enters into God's very presence. This was the way the Old Testament believers would commit themselves to God through the sacrifice of an animal. Now, for those of you who are Christian, I'm not sure if light bulbs are going off, if you're understanding what all of this means, right? See, you know, the reason why when Jesus comes, he couldn't make atonement for us just by teaching us, right? For God to earn, or for Jesus to earn God's favor on our behalf, Jesus couldn't just simply come and counsel us or maybe host a meal between us. He couldn't say, hey, God and man, why don't we come together and let's work this out, No, for us to truly be reconciled to God, Jesus had to be the perfect spotless substitute. You know, for us to be reconciled to the point where God just doesn't put up with us, but he actually finds us delightful. He actually finds us to be pleasing. Jesus had to be that perfect spotless sacrifice. For us to be at one with God again, For us to be atoned, to be reconciled, there had to be the shedding of blood. And Jesus had to be that innocent substitution through whom we can give ourselves to God. See, if you have this background and understanding of the burnt offering, you know, some of the things that we find in the New Testament starts to make a little more sense. There's a little more meat on the bones. For instance, look at what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 9, 13, and 14. He says this, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 
See, in the back of the mind of the author of Hebrews is this burnt offering where the, off, where the worshiper would give himself to God. And he's saying now, how much more with the blood of Christ can we now serve the living God? Or what Paul says, Ephesians 5.2. He says this, walk in love. And before this, preceding this, it, it was a, Paul is calling the, the Christian to live a life of surrender, of self-sacrifice. He's saying this, walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 15. Jesus died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and raised. And finally, Romans 12. This actually makes a lot more sense when you read it with the context of Leviticus. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Friends, do you know why the New Testament is calling us to live a life of devotion and commitment a life of sacrifice and total submission to God? It's because God has forgiven us. That's the sin offering. And because Jesus atoned for us, that's the burnt offering. See, when we receive grace, when we experience mercy, when we have finally been reconciled as sinners to a holy God, we no longer have to go about living our lives trying to prove ourselves and earn God's favor. We already have it. And so, as a Christian, we can say, here's my life. Here's my body. Here I am. Take it. I offer it up to you. It's yours. Friends, the point is this. For us to live a life of full devotion and commitment to Jesus, we need his saving blood. We can practice a life of self-denial. We can join a monastery. We can live a morally upright life. We can sell all of our possessions and vow a life of poverty. We can empty ourselves of every earthly desire. We can seek nirvana. But on your own, your offering will never be a pleasing aroma. We need Jesus. And if we have Jesus, my life, your life, no matter how broken, no matter how fragile, no matter how messed up, no matter the past, no matter how stained your life is, we can offer it up and it can be a pleasing aroma to God. You know, let me give you three practical points of application, and I think this will drive home the point of what this burnt offering is. Let me give you three things. First is this. Um, the burnt offering was the only offering that was voluntary. Okay. God never required the worshiper to give himself to God. 
sin offering, guilt offering, peace offering, grain offering. These are things you had to do. But the burnt offering was completely voluntary. God never required the worshiper to give himself to God. But you know, the interesting thing is this. If you follow the order of worship, if you follow the progression of how this is going, right? First, the sinner comes, and he or she offers their sin offering, and they see that by the mercy and by the grace of God, they were forgiven. When they experience this, that person has no other choice, no other response but to say, here is my life now. It is wholly yours. He offers the burnt offering joyfully and voluntarily. You know, I can imagine people in um, the Old Testament period, people who are bringing animals for sacrifice, right? They're bringing animals for their guilt and sin offering. And, of course, the most costly one, the burnt offering. I'm sure many people brought that too, but they probably brought it thinking, you know what? I'm just going to bring this, and I'm going to take it back with me. I'm going to bring it just in case, because I might need it. And so you can imagine a few worshipers bringing their burnt offering, but hiding it, Make sure, you know, making sure that the priest doesn't see it, tying it somewhere far away. And the worshiper comes. He offers up his sin offering, and he sees the blood. He sees that he is forgiven. He sees that he is forgiven not by a form of punishment or by doing penance, but he sees that he is forgiven by grace. The worshiper, she sees that through the blood of a substitute that she is cleansed and she has earned God's favor. What does the worshiper do? runs back outside immediately and brings the bull that he or she was hiding and says, here, take this. This represents my life. I am no longer my own, but I belong to you. I give this to you willingly and voluntarily. You are a good God. You know, this reminds me of a friend that, um, that I had a few years back. Uh, he was a bit of a wild buck, you know, for lack, of, of, for lack of a better term. He was a, a pretty, um, he lived recklessly, uh, lived carelessly. He was one of those guys who lived off the cuff, uh, hated people uh, or hated, you know, uh, establishment and commitment and all these things. He was just a real young, wild buck. But all of a sudden, he met this girl. And he was never one for commitment or for serious relationships. But he started seeing this girl. Now, at first, we were like, what, what is going on? I mean, she was a classical musician. Okay, so she's the, the complete opposite of this individual. But they started to meet. And as they got deeper in their relationship, this individual started to change. He became more normal. Uh, he said, I'll meet you at 8. And he showed up at 8. Okay, uh, He said, I'll email you, and he emailed me. He said, I'll call you back, and he called me back. I mean, things started to just change about him. And, you know, of course, when we met with our friends, we would tease him, right? Um, what else 
do guys do when they meet? Uh, so we, we always taught him. We're like, hey, what happened? I thought you're this young guy that, that um, you know, that, that you live off the cuff and, you know, you're, you're not one for commitment. And, you know, he would just respond jokingly. He would say, no, 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 this, this, this is all just, it's, it's just a phase. And he would, he would have these one-liners, these classic one-liners. He would say, oh, no one can tame me. Right? He'd say, I can't be caged. I'm a wild tiger. I'm not a domesticized cat. Right? He would have these, these crazy one-liners. Uh, but he got deeper into the relationship, deeper and deeper, and he committed. He proposed. They got engaged. Shortly after, he came to me, and he said, hey, could you walk with us through premarital counseling? because I really want to give my life to this. Could you officiate our wedding because this is what I want to give my life for. This is the person I want to live for. I want to give my life for her. And I had to jokingly ask, whatever happened to, I can't be caged. And he said something that I would never forget. He said, she's different. She really cares about me. And when I realized this, I voluntarily walked into where she was, and I closed the cage door behind me. I caged myself in because I knew that she really loved me. Friends, for those of you who've tasted grace, for those of you who've experienced God's mercy, you know what this is like, don't you? Perhaps you started coming out to church thinking, you know what, I'm not going to get sucked in. I'm not going to get sucked into all of this religion. I'm just going to come on Sundays. It's good for the kids. I can probably meet more people. I'll come and just sit through it, and I'm going to leave. But friends, for those of you who've experienced it, you know what it's like. The more and more you experience grace, the more and more you taste forgiveness, the more and more you realize that, you know what, God is not someone who's trying to use me. He's not trying to extort me. But he genuinely gave everything to me. For those of you who've experienced this, you know that there is no other response but to say, here is my life. Take it. It's yours. I don't belong to myself anymore. I want to give myself wholly to you. You know, the most moving thing about the burnt offering, the burnt sacrifice, I think is this. You know, the Israelites, the audience here, the original audience, they were former slaves, right? So they lived their entire lives, you know, being told by their slave masters, you belong to me, you exist for my service, you were bought at a price, you have absolutely no freedom, and there's nothing you can do about it. That was what they were told their entire lives. But after God saves them, the first type of offering that he explains to them is a voluntary one. He says, if you want to draw near to me, here is how you do it. It's not forced if you want to do this. And the people at first are probably thinking, I just got out of slavery. Why would I live for someone else? I just got my freedom. Why would I enslave myself to another master? But as they go through the sacrifices, as they experience that once again, this God doesn't want to just use them, but
but that he truly loves them. When they see that God brought them, he bought them with a price, when they realize that they were actually ransomed, then the worshipers, the Israelites, they voluntarily say, you know what? Here is my life. Take it. It belongs to you. It's voluntary, but it's the only proper response to the gospel. The second point of application is this. You know, the burnt offering was costly. It was a very expensive, expensive thing. But if you look at chapter 1, there's actually a range of what you can offer. And it depends upon your economic situation. So if you were well off, you gave a bull. If you were middle class, you gave a lamb. But if you were poor, you could bring a pigeon. Interesting fact, when Jesus is presented at the temple in Luke 2, you know what Mary and Joseph offer up? A pigeon. Yeah, Jesus was born into a very poor family. But this system, depending on where you are, to offer up what you can, this is showing that there isn't a price tag to this voluntary act of dedication. See, this burnt offering is teaching us that whatever you have, whoever you are, whatever your circumstances, you can willingly give yourself to the Lord. And it will be a pleasing aroma to God. See, because we have Jesus, the perfect substitution, we don't have to bring something that's of great worth and value that will amaze God because we already have His Son. That whatever we have, whatever the Lord has given to us, whatever our allotment is, we can come and say, God, this is what I am. This is who I am. Take me. Use me. And the promise is that you will be an acceptable offering to the Lord. The final practical point is this. Um, regarding what we're doing here, uh, worship, you know, we are misunderstanding worship if we think that the point of all this is to just come, uh, sit down, you know, listen to a talk, learn a few things, sing a few songs, say hello to people, and leave unchanged. That's not the purpose of worship. Worship is not about affirming what you already know. No, worship is about challenging your values Worship is about rewiring you so that you can see that your worth is really in Jesus. It's about challenging your passions and your worldviews. And ultimately, worship is about calling you to die to yourself once again. See, what we're doing in worship is this. We are coming and we are tasting once again God's goodness. We are experiencing His grace. We are remembering His mercies. We are once again reliving the cross. And once we realize this, once we get a sense of this, the response is, here God, here's my life, take it. There's always an aspect of consecration, 
sacrifice, commitment, dedication, and worship. Worship should always result in God calling you to lay down your life and you in submission saying, God, here, take it. And so here's the million-dollar question. What are some ways in which God is calling you right now to lay down your life? What are some of the pleasures and the passions of the flesh that the Lord is asking you to lay down? What area of your life have you yet to submit to the Lord? What plans for your life, what ambitions for your children have you yet to lay down before the Lord? What area of your life? Is it your relationships, the way in which you spend your time? Is it your finances? Is it your hobbies, your passions? What area of your life is the Lord calling you to lay down, to consecrate and surrender before Him? See, worship should always result in the stubbornness of my heart and the obstinance that I have inside me where the gospel meets these things and, and the worshiper ultimately saying, God, I surrender once again. I, rem- I am reminded that you are a God who is for me, that you love me, that you are infinitely more wise and more good than I am, that your plans are higher than my plans, that your ways are more perfect than my ways. Here is my life once again. I submit it to you. Everything that I hold on to, God, here, take it. I can entrust you with all of it. This is how the worship to end. You know, Romans 12, 1 says this, right? To be a living sacrifice. You know, the interesting thing about a living sacrifice is, if it's a living sacrifice, if it's living, it can keep crawling off the altar. And so, friends, in what way is God calling you to get back on that altar to say, here, God, Here is my life. It belongs to you. Friends, this is not a form of extortion. It's not a form of bribery. It's not a form of trying to appease God and gain his favor. You already have that. Would you taste it? Would you experience it once again? And knowing that God is for you ultimately results in saying, God, here is my life. It belongs to you. Take this, this small, feeble, broken life, and use it for your glory. Would you join me in prayer at this time?